This is, well, actually, you know what? I can do the math very, very quickly. Um, so the first book, 12 chapters, you know what? Let's let's decide on a standardized way to assess this. Let's, we're gonna call this, um, I'm gonna call it three books because I think that's how most people know it. Um, that's how they arrange the movies, etc. I think we're gonna call this three books and instead of calling them book one, two, three, four, five, six, I'm gonna call it book one, part one, book one, part two, etc., etc. So that's just that's just a standardized way of saying this. Let's talk a bit of review. Last time on Flying Sidecar. A voice actors venture through some stories that we all love. It's been a couple of weeks, but Strider has brought our little party of adventurers, these these hobbits uh, walking a long road that they weren't necessarily anticipating. Uh, Strider has brought them now into the wilderness, uh, kind of the deep wilderness. They're trying to travel off the roads somewhat because they know they're being pursued by black riders. Um, they have, you know, they've gone through the marshes and encountered all these midges that bite at them and get inside their clothes. That sounds nasty. Uh, a really stressful way to travel. A lot of cortisol coming out on this one. Off into the hills and finally to Weathertop. This is a, a, a tall hill with a good view of the surrounding country as uh, Strider expressed it would be. Turns out he was right, and it turns out that other folk have been using it for the same purposes. When they arrive at Weathertop, they find that there is a, a little fire that has been created and then and then uh, left behind. Um, things that are like burned and charred. Perhaps this fire was bigger even than they first imagined. Um, and they find a little stone with a, a G rune and then three marks on it. It's hard to tell precisely what it means, but Strider thinks that perhaps it indicates that Gandalf was here. Gandalf and Strider and the Hobbits are not the only visitor to Weathertop. Before too long, as they make their camp here, and Strider tells stories about the elves, about the days of old, they are greeted once again by the black-clad riders approaching Weathertop. Our adventurers try to mount an ambush. It goes poorly, and Frodo is forced to fight. He shouts uh, uh, Gilthonio and Elbereth, and unfortunately, he is struck down. And that is where we left our adventurers. It's time now to jump back into the world, into Middle-earth, and find out what has become of our halfling companions. Chapter 12, Flight to the Ford. When Frodo came to himself, he was still clutching the ring desperately. He was lying by the fire, which was now piled high and burning brightly. His three companions were bending over him. 
What's happened? Where is the Pale King? He asked wildly. They were too overjoyed to hear him speak to answer for a while, nor did they understand his question. At length, he gathered from Sam that they had seen nothing but the vague, shadowy shapes coming toward them. Suddenly, to his horror, Sam found that his master had vanished. At that moment, a black shadow had rushed past him, and he fell. He heard Frodo's voice, but it seemed to come from a great distance, or from under the earth, crying out strange words. They saw nothing more until they stumbled over the body of Frodo, lying as if dead, face downward on the grass with his sword beneath him. Strider ordered them to pick him up and lay him near the fire, and then he disappeared. That was now a good while ago. Sam plainly was beginning to have doubts again about Strider, but while they were talking, he returned, appearing suddenly out of the shadows. They started, and Sam drew his sword and stood over Frodo, but Strider knelt down swiftly at his side. I'm not a black rider, Sam, he said gently, nor in league with them. I've been trying to discover something of their movements, but I have found nothing. I cannot think why they've gone and do not attack again, but there is no feeling of their presence anywhere at hand. When he heard what Frodo had to tell, he became full of concern and shook his head and sighed. Then he ordered Pippin and Mary to heat as much water as they could in their small kettles and to bathe the wound with it. Keep the fire going well, and keep Frodo warm, he said. Then he got up and walked away, and called Sam to him. I think I understand things better now, he said in a low voice. There seem only to have been five of the enemy. Why they were not all here, I do not know, but... I don't think they were expecting to be resisted. They've drawn off for the time being, but not far, I fear. They will come again another night if we cannot escape. They are only waiting because they think that their purpose is almost accomplished and that the ring cannot fly much further. I fear, Sam, that they believe your master has a deadly wound that will subdue him to their will. We shall see. Sam choked with tears. "'Don't despair,' said Strider. "'You must trust me now. "'Your Frodo is made of sterner stuff than I had guessed, "'though Gandalf hinted that such a thing might be true. "'He was not slain, "'and I think he will resist the power of the wound "'longer than his enemies expect. "'I will do all that I can to help and heal him. "'Guard him well while I'm away.' "'He hurried off and disappeared again into the wilderness.' Frodo dozed, though the pain of his wound was slowly growing, and a deadly chill was spreading from his shoulder to his side and his arm. His friends watched over him, warming him, bathing his wound. The night passed slowly and wearily. Dawn was growing in the sky, and the dell was filling with gray light when Strider at last returned. "'Look!' he cried, and stooping, he lifted from the ground a black cloak that had lain there hidden by the darkness— a foot above the lower hem there was a slash. This was the stroke of Frodo's sword, he said. The only hurt that it did to his enemy, I fear, for it is unharmed. But all blades perish that pierce the dreadful king. More deadly to him was the name of Elbereth. And more deadly to Frodo was this. He stooped again and lifted up a long, thin knife. There was a cold gleam in it. As Strider raised it, they saw near the edge 
It was notched, and the point was broken off, but even as he held it up in the growing light, they gazed in astonishment, for the blade seemed to melt and vanished like smoke in the air, leaving only the hilt in Strider's hand. "'Alas!' he cried. "'It was this accursed knife that gave the wound. "'Few now have the skill in healing to match such an evil weapon, "'but I will do what I can.' "'He sat down on the ground, and taking the dagger hilt, "'laid it upon his knee, and sang over it in a slow song in a strange tongue. "'Then, setting it aside, he turned to Frodo, "'and in a soft tone spoke words to him that they could not catch. "'From the pouch at his belt he drew out the long leaves of the plant.' These leaves, he said, I have walked far to find, for this plant does not grow in the bare hills, but in the thickets away south of the road. I found it in the dark by the scent of its leaves. He crushed a leaf in his fingers, and it gave out a sweet and pungent fragrance. It is fortunate I could find it, for it is a healing plant that the men of the West brought to Middle-earth. At Delas, they named it and it grows now sparsely, and only near places where they dwelt or camped of old, and it is not known in the north except to some who wander in the wild. It has got great virtues, but over such a wound as this, its healing powers may be small. He threw the leaves into the boiling water and bathed Frodo's shoulder. The fragrance of the steam was refreshing, and those that were unhurt felt their minds calmed and cleared. The herb also had some power over the wound, for Frodo felt the pain and also the sense of frozen cold lessen in his side. But the life did not return to his arm, and he could not raise or use his hand. He bitterly regretted his foolishness and reproached himself for weakness of will, for he now perceived that in putting on the ring, he obeyed not his own desire, but the commanding wish of his enemies. He wondered if he would remain maimed for life, and how they would manage to continue their journey. He felt too weak to stand. The others were discussing this very question. They quickly decided to leave Weathertop as soon as possible. I think now, said Strider, that the enemy has been watching this place for some days. If Gandalf ever came here, then he must have been forced to ride away, and he will not return. In any case, we are in great peril here after dark, since the attack of last night and we can hardly meet greater danger wherever we go. As soon as the daylight was full, they had some hurried food and packed. It was impossible for Frodo to walk, so they divided the greater part of their baggage among the four of them and put Frodo on the pony. In the last few days, the poor beast had improved wonderfully. It already seemed fatter and stronger and had begun to show affection for its new masters, especially for Sam. Bill Fernie's treatment must have been hard, very hard for the journey in the wild to seem so much better than its former life. They started off in a southerly direction. This would mean crossing the road, but it was the quickest way to more wooded country, and they needed fuel. For Strider said that Frodo must be kept warm, especially at night, and fire would be some protection for them all. It was also his plan to shorten their journey by cutting across another great loop of the road. East beyond Weathertop, it changed its course and took a wide bend northward. They made their way slowly and cautiously round the southwestern slopes of the hill and came in a little while to the edge of the road. There was no sign of the riders, but even as they were hurrying across, they heard two faraway cries. A cold voice calling, 
and a cold voice answering. Trembling, they sprang forward and made for the thickets that lay ahead. The land before them sloped away southward, but it was wild and pathless. Bushes and stunted trees grew in dense patches with wide, barren spaces in between. The grass was scanty, coarse, and gray, and the leaves in the thicket were faded and falling. It was a cheerless land, and their journey was slow and gloomy. They spoke little as they trudged along. Frodo's heart was grieved as he watched them walking beside him with their heads down and their backs bowed under their burdens. Even Strider seemed tired and heavy-hearted. Before the day's march was over, Frodo's pain began to grow again, but he did not speak of it for a long time. Four days passed, without the ground or the scene changing much, except that behind them Weathertop slowly sank, and before them the distant mountains loomed a little nearer. Yet since that far cry they had seen and heard no sign that the enemy had marked their flight or followed them, they dreaded the dark hours and kept watch in pairs at night, expecting at any time to see black shapes stalking in the gray night, dimly lit by the cloud-veiled moon, but they saw nothing and heard no sound but the sigh of withered leaves and grass. Not once did they feel the sense of present evil that had assailed them before the attack in the dell. It seemed too much to hope that the riders had already lost their trail again. Perhaps they were waiting to make some ambush in a narrow place. At the end of the fifth day, the ground began once more to rise slowly out of the wide, shallow valley into which they had descended. Strider now turned their course again northeastward, and on the sixth day they reached the top of a long, slow-climbing slope and saw far ahead a huddle of wooded hills. Away below them they could see the road sweeping around the feet of the hills, and to their right a grey river gleamed pale in the thin sunshine. In the distance they glimpsed yet another river in a stony valley, half-veiled in mist. "'I'm afraid we must go back to the road for a while,' said Strider. "'We've now come to the river Horwell, that the elves call Mithaithel. "'It flows down out of the Ettenmoors, the troll fells north of Rivendell, "'and joins the Loudwater away in the south. "'Some call it the Grey Flood after that.' It is a great water before it finds the sea. There is no way over it below its sources in the Ettenmoors, except by the last bridge on which the road crosses. What's that other river we can see far away there? asked Mary. That is Loudwater, the Bruinin of Rivendell, answered Strider. The road runs along the edge of the hills for many miles from the bridge to the ford of Bruinin, but I have not yet thought how we shall cross the water. One river at a time. We shall be fortunate indeed if we do not find the last bridge held against us. Next day, early in the morning, they came down again to the borders of the road. Sam and Strider went forward, but they found no sign of any travelers or riders. Here, under the shadow of the hills, there had been some rain. Strider judged that it had fallen two days before and had washed away all the footprints. No horseman had passed since then, as far as he could see. They hurried along with all the speed that they could make, and after a mile or two they saw the last bridge ahead at the bottom of a short, steep slope. They dreaded to see black figures waiting there, but they saw none. Strider made them take cover in a thicket at the side of the road while he went forward to explore. Before long he came hurrying back. 
I can see no sign of the enemy, he said, and I wonder very much what that means. But I have found something very strange. He held out his hand, and it showed a single pale green jewel. I found it in the mud in the middle of the bridge, he said. It is a burial, an elf stone. Whether it was set there or let fall by chance, I cannot say, but it brings hope to me. I will take it as a sign that we may pass the bridge, but beyond that I dare not keep to the road without some clearer token. Wait, hold on. That's a different movie. <laughs> There's a chapter break here. Um, so I'm just going to chuck a quick chatter break question at you. Hey, hey, chatter break question. The elves. The elves. What does it mean that they left this sign here? Did this, did this stone fall idly? At once they went on again. They crossed the bridge in safety, hearing no sound but the water swirling against its own three great arches. A mile further on, they came to a narrow ravine that led away northward through the steep lands on the left side of the road. Here, Strider turned aside, and soon they were lost in a somber country of dark trees winding among the feet of the sullen hills. The hobbits were glad to leave the cheerless lands and the perilous road behind them, but this new country seemed threatening and unfriendly. As they went forward, the hills about them steadily rose. Here and there, upon heights and ridges, they caught glimpses of ancient walls of stone and the ruins of towers. They had an ominous look. Frodo, who was not walking, had time to gaze ahead and to think. He recalled Bilbo's account of his journey and the threatening towers on the hills north of the road in the country near the Trolls' Wood, where was his first serious adventure. Frodo guessed that they were now in the same region and wondered if by chance they would pass near the spot. "'Who lives in this land?' he asked. "'And who built these towers? Is this troll country?' "'No,' said Strider. "'Trolls do not build. "'No one lives in this land. "'Men once dwelt here long ago, "'but none remain now. "'They became an evil people, as legends tell, "'for they fell under the shadow of Angmar.' But all were destroyed in the war that brought the northern kingdom to its end. But that is now so long ago that the hills have forgotten them, though a shadow still lies upon the land. Where did you learn such tales, if all the land is empty and forgetful? asked Peregrine. The birds and beasts don't tell tales of that sort. The heirs of Elendil do not forget all things past, said Strider. And many more things I can tell are remembered in Rivendell. Have you often been to Rivendell? said Frodo. I have, said Strider. I dwelt there once, and I still return when I may. There my heart is, but it is not my fate to sit in peace, even in the fair house of Elrond. The hills now began to shut them in. The road behind held its way to the river Bruinen, but both were now hidden from view. The travelers came to a long valley, narrow, deeply cloven, dark, and silent. 
trees with old and twisted roots hung over cliffs and piled up behind the mounting slopes of pine wood. The hobbits grew very weary. They advanced slowly, for they had to pick their way through a pathless country, encumbered by fallen trees and tumbling rocks. As long as they could, they avoided climbing for Frodo's sake, and because it was, in fact, difficult to find any way up out of the narrow dales. They had been two days in this country when the weather turned wet. The wind began to blow steadily out of the west and pour the water of the distant seas onto the dark heads of the hills in fine, drenching rain. By nightfall, they were all soaked, and their camp was cheerless, for they could not get any fire to burn. The next day the hills rose still higher and steeper before them, and they were forced to turn away northward out of their course. Strider seemed to be getting anxious. They were nearly ten days out from Weathertop, and their stock of provisions was beginning to run low. It went on raining. That night they camped on a stony shelf in a rock wall behind them, in which there was a shallow cave, a mere scoop of the cliff. Frodo was restless. The cold and wet had made his wound more painful than ever, and the ache and sense of deadly chill took away all sleep. He lay tossing and turning and listening fearfully to the stealthy night noises. Wind in chinks of rock. Water dripping. A crack, the sudden rattling of a loosened stone. He felt that black shapes were advancing to smother him, but when he sat up, he saw nothing but the back of Strider sitting hunched up, smoking his pipe, and watching. He lay down again and passed into an uneasy dream, in which he walked on the grass in his garden in the Shire, but it seemed faint and dim, less clear than the tall black shadows that stood looking over the hedge. In the morning, he woke to find that the rain had stopped. The clouds were still thick, but they were breaking, and pale strips of blue appeared in between them. The wind was shifting again. They did not start early. Immediately after their cold and comfortless breakfast, Strider went off alone, telling the others to remain under the cliff in shelter until he came back. He was going to climb up, if he could, and get a look at the lie of the land. When he returned, he was not reassuring. "'We've come too far north.' he said. We must find some way to turn back southwards again. If we keep this way, we're going to get into the Ettendales, far north of Rivendell. That's troll country, and little known to me. We could, perhaps, find our way through and come round to Rivendell from the north, but it would take too long, for I don't know the way, and our food would not last. So somehow or other, we must find the ford of Bruinen. The rest of that day they spent scrambling over rocky ground. They found a passage between two hills that led them into a valley running southeast, the direction they had wished to take, but toward the end of the day they found that their road was again barred by a ridge of high land. Its dark edge against the sky was broken into many bare points like teeth of a blunted saw. They had a choice between going back or climbing over it. They decided to attempt the climb, but it proved very difficult. Before long, Frodo was obliged to dismount and struggle along on foot. Even so, they often despaired of getting their pony up, or indeed of finding a path for themselves, burdened as they were. The light was nearly gone, and they were all exhausted 
when at last they reached the top. They had climbed onto a narrow saddle between two higher points, and the land fell steeply away again, only a short distance ahead. Frodo threw himself down and lay upon the ground, shivering. His left arm was lifeless, and his side and shoulder felt as if icy claws were laid upon them. The trees and rocks about him seemed shadowy and dim. "'We cannot go any further,' said Merry to Strider. "'I am afraid this has been too much for Frodo. I am dreadfully anxious about him. What are we to do? D did you think that we'll be able to cure him in Rivendell, if we ever get him there?' "'We shall see,' answered Strider. There is nothing more that I can do in the wilderness, and it is chiefly because of his wound I am so anxious to press on. But I agree, we can go no further tonight. What is the matter with my master? asked Sam in a low voice, looking appealingly at Strider. His wound was small, and it's already closed. There's nothing to be seen but a cold white mark on his shoulder. Frodo has been touched by the weapons of the enemy, said Strider, and there is some poison or evil at work that is beyond my skill to drive out. But do not give up hope, Sam. Night was cold up in the high ridge. They lit a small fire down under the gnarled roots of an old pine that hung over a shallow pit. It looked as if stone had once been quarried there. They sat huddled together, the wind blew chill through the pass, and they heard the treetops lower down, moaning and sighing. Frodo lay half in a dream, imagining that endless dark wings were sweeping by above him, and that on the wings rode pursuers that sought him in all the hollows of the hills. The morning dawned bright and fair. The air was clean and the light pale and clear in a rain-washed sky. Their hearts were encouraged, but they longed for the sun to warm their cold, stiff limbs. As soon as it was light, Strider took Mary with him and went off to survey the country from the height to the east of the pass. The sun was risen, and was shining brightly when he returned with more comforting news. They were now going more or less in the right direction. If they went on, down the further side of the ridge, they would have the mountains on their left. Some way ahead, Strider had caught glimpse of the loud water again and he knew that, though it was hidden from view, the road to the ford was not far from the river, and lay on the side nearest to them. "'We must make for the road again,' he said. "'We cannot hope to find a path through these hills. Whatever danger may beset it, the road is our only way to the ford.' As soon as they had eaten, they set out again. They climbed slowly down the southern side of the ridge, but the way was much easier than they had expected, for the slope was far less steep on this side, and before long Frodo was able to get to ride again. Bill Fernie's poor old pony was developing an unexpected talent for picking out a path, and for sparing its rider as many jolts as possible. The spirits of the party rose again. Even Frodo felt better in the morning light, but every now and then a mist seemed to obscure his sight, and he passed his hands over his eyes. Pippin was a little ahead of the others. Suddenly he turned round and called to them. "'There's a path here!' he cried. When they came up with him, they saw that he had made no mistake. There were clearly the beginnings of a path that climbed with many windings out of the woods below and faded away to a hilltop beyond. In places it was now faint and overgrown or choked with fallen stones and trees, but at one time it seemed to have been much used. It was a path made by strong arms and heavy feet— 
Here and there, old trees had been cut or broken down, and large rocks cloven or heaved aside to make a way. They followed the track for some while, for it offered much the easiest way down, but they went cautiously, and their anxiety increased as they came into the dark woods, and the path grew plainer and broader. Suddenly, coming out of a belt of fir trees, it ran steeply down a slope and turned sharply to the left round the corner of a rocky shoulder of the hill. When they had come to the corner, they looked round and saw that the path ran right over a level strip of the face of a low cliff overhung with trees. In the stony wall there was a door, hanging crookedly ajar upon one great hinge. Outside the door they all halted. There was a cave or rock chamber behind, but in the gloom inside nothing could be seen. Strider, Sam, and Mary pushed with all their strength and managed to open the door a little wider, and then Strider and Mary went in. They did not go far, for on the floor lay many old bones, and nothing else was to be seen near the entrance except some great empty jars and broken pots. Oh, surely this is a troll hole, if there ever was one. Come out, you two, let us get away, said Pippin. Now we know who made the path, and we'd better get off it quick. There's no need, I think, said Strider, coming out. It is certainly a troll hole, but it seems to have been long forsaken. I do not think we need to be afraid, but let us go down warily, and we shall see. The path went on again from the door, and turned to the right again across the level space, plunging down a thick wooded slope. Pippin, not liking to show Strider that he was still afraid, went on ahead with Mary. Sam and Strider came up behind, one on each side of Frodo's pony, for the path was now broad enough for four or five hobbits to walk abreast. But they had not gone very far before Pippin came running back, followed by Mary. They both looked terrified. There are trolls, Pippin panted, down in a clearing in the woods not far beyond. We got a sight of them through the tree trunks, they're very large. We will come and look at them, said Strider, picking up a stick. Frodo said nothing, but Sam looked scared. This is not the end of the chapter proper, but this is a good breaking point about halfway through. Uh, and as such, I wanted to take a moment and chat with you all. Just just a quick second here, not a full uh, you know, break between chapters, but I uh, did just want to take a, a brief moment. Um, we are we are once again wandering through the the unkept parts of the world. Uh, old paths uh, made by big, broad hands and heavy feet. It's fun stuff, right? And uh, I think this kind of this whole chapter has reinforced some of what I've what I was talking about before about this really being uh, the one of the first and greatest uh, of its kind, right? Th this is the this is the thing that has inspired so so much the herbalism, right, with the Atheras plant um, uh, to heal Frodo, uh, 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 Strider doing some sort of like song over the hilt of the blade uh, that pierced. 
<laughs> Frodo's shoulder in order to identify it. Um, uh, there are you know songs and tales told, rangers walking in the wilderness. So much of this, all of this, all this thing. You know, uh, 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 we have to keep Frodo warm at night. <laughs> all of this was fantastic. Um, uh, it really, it really is very reminiscent of very classic uh, fantasy adventure stories, and uh, you know, I, I would love to talk maybe after the chapter today about uh, some of the hallmarks thereof. What makes a story like this, like this? What are the what are the elements proper that that go into a proper fantasy story for you? Um, and uh, as I as I have been in the past, I am very interested to see how does that change in different cultures of the world. So all of you overseas folks, I would love to hear from you. All right, let's get back into it. The sun was now high, and it shone down through the half-stripped branches of the trees and lit the clearing with bright patches of light. They halted suddenly on the edge and peered through the tree trunks, holding their breath. There stood the trolls, three large trolls. One was stooping, and the other two stood staring at him. Strider walked forward unconcernedly. "'Get up, old stone,' he said, and broke his stick upon the stooping troll." Nothing happened. There was a gasp of astonishment from the hobbits, and even Frodo laughed. <laughs> uh, well, he said, we're forgetting our family history. These must be the very three that were caught by Gandalf, quarreling over the right way to cook thirteen dwarves and one hobbit. I had no idea that we were anywhere near the police, said Pippin. He knew the story well. Bilbo and Frodo had told it often, but as a matter of fact, he had never more than half believed it. Even now, he looked at the stone trolls with suspicion, wondering if some magic might suddenly bring them to life again. "'You're forgetting not only your family history, but all that you ever knew about trolls,' said Strider. "'It is broad daylight with a bright sun. Yet you come back trying to scare me with a tale of living trolls waiting for us in this glade. In any case, you may have noticed that one of them has got an old bird's nest behind his ear.' That would be a most unusual ornament for a live troll. They all laughed. Frodo felt his spirits reviving. The reminder of Bilbo's first successful adventure was heartening. The sun, too, was warm and comforting, and the mist before his eyes seemed to be lifting a little. They rested for some time in the glade and took their midday meal right under the shadow of the troll's large legs. "'Won't somebody give us a bit of a song while the sun's high?' said Mary, when they had finished. "'We haven't had a good song or a tale for days.' "'Not since Weathertop,' said Frodo. The others looked at him. "'Don't worry about me,' he added. "'I feel much better, but I don't think I could sing. Perhaps Sam could dig something out of his memory.' "'Come on, Sam,' said Mary. "'There's more stored in your head than you let on about.' "'I don't know about that,' said Sam. "'But... 
How would this suit? It ain't what I would call proper poetry, if you understand me. Just a bit of nonsense. But these old images were brought back to me mind. Standing up with his hands behind his back as if he was at school, he began to sing to an old tune. Troll sat alone on a seat, a stone and munched and mumbled a bare old bone. For many a year he gnawed it near, for me it was hard to come by. Don by, come by, in a cave in the hills who dwelt alone and meat was hard to come by. Up came Tom with his big boots on, he said to the troll, play what is yon, for it looks like a shin of mine Uncle Tim. And it should be lying in graveyard. Caveyard, paveyard, for many a year has Tim been gone, and I thought he were lying in graveyard. My lad, said the troll, it's bone I stole, but what be bones that lie in a hole? Thine uncle was dead as a lump of lead, afore I found his shin bone. Tin bone, tin bone, he can spare a share for a poor old troll, for he don't need his shin bone. Said Tom, I don't see why likes of thee without... Asking should go making free with a shank or shin of my father's kin, so end the old bone over. Rover, trover, though dead he be, it belongs to we, so end the old bone over. For a couple of pins, says the troll, and grins, I'll eat thee too, and gnaw thy shins. A bit of fresh meat will go down sweet, I'll try my teeth on thee now. He now, see now, I'm tired of gnawing old bones and skins, I've a mind to dine on thee now. But just as he thought as his dinner was caught, he found his hands had hold a knot, for he could mind Tom slip behind and gave him the boot to learn him. Warn him, turn him. A bump of the boot on the seat, Tom thought, will be the way to learn him. But harder than stone is the flesh and bone of a troll that sits on the hill alone. So set your boot to the mountain's root for the seat of a troll. Don't feel it. Peel it, heal it. Old troll laughed when he heard Tom groan and he knew his toes could feel it. Tom's leg is game since home he came and his bootless foot is lost in lime. But Troll don't care, he's still down there with the bony bone from his owner. Donor! Boner! Troll's old seat is still the same and the bone he boned from his owner. <laughs> well, that's a warning to us all, laughed Mary. It's as well you used a stick and not your hand, Strider. Where did you come by that, Sam? asked Pippin. Never heard those words before. Sam muttered something inaudible. It's out of his own head, of course, said Frodo. I'm learning a lot about Sam Gamgee on this journey. First he was a conspirator, now he's a jester. He'll end up by becoming a wizard or a warrior. Well, I hope not, said Sam. We don't want to be neither. In the afternoon, they went on down the woods. They were probably following the very track that Gandalf, Bilbo, and the dwarves had used many years before. After a few miles, they came out right on top of a high bank above the road. At this point, the road had left the Horwell far behind in its narrow valley and now clung close to the feet of the hills, rolling and winding eastward among the woods and heather-covered slopes toward the ford and the mountains. Not far down the bank, Strider pointed out a stone in the grass. On it, roughly cut and now much weathered, could still be seen dwarf runes and secret marks. There, said Mary, that must be the stone that marked the place where the troll's gold was hidden. How much is left to Bilbo's share, I wonder, Frodo? 
Frodo looked at the stone and wished that Bilbo had brought home no treasure more perilous or less easy to part with. None at all, he said. Bilbo gave it all away. He told me he'd never really felt it was his, as it came from robbers. The road lay quiet under the long shadows of early evening. There was no sign of any other travelers to be seen, as there was now no other possible course for them to take. They climbed down the bank and turned left as fast as they could. Soon a shoulder of the hills cut off the light of the fast westering sun. A cold wind flowed down to meet them from the mountains ahead. They were beginning to look out for a place off the road where they could camp for the night when they heard a sound that brought sudden fear back into their hearts. The noise of hoofs behind them. They turned back, but they could not see far because of the many windings and rollings of the road. As quickly as they could, they scrambled off the beaten way and up the deep heather and bilberry brushwood to the slopes above, until they came to a small patch of thick-growing hazels. As they peered out from among the bushes, they could see the road, faint and grey in the failing light, some thirty feet below them. The sound of hoofs grew nearer. They were going fast, with a light clippity-clippity-clippity-clip, then faintly, as if it were blown away from them by the breeze, they seemed to catch a dim ringing, as of small bells tinkling. "'That does not sound like a black rider's horse,' said Frodo, listening intently. The other hobbits agreed hopefully that it was not, but they all remained full of suspicion. They had been in fear of pursuit for so long that any sound from behind seemed ominous and unfriendly. But Strider was now leaning forward, stooped to the ground, with a hand to his ear and a look of joy on his face. Light faded, and the leaves in the bushes rustled softly. Clearer and nearer now the bells jingled, and came the quick trotting feet. Suddenly into view came a white horse, gleaming in the shadows, running swiftly. In the dusk its heads tall flickered and flashed as if it were studded with the gems like living stars. The rider's cloak streamed behind him, and his hood was thrown back. His golden hair flowed shimmering in the wind of his speed. To Frodo it appeared that a white light was shining through the form and raiment of the rider, as if through a thin veil. Strider sprang from hiding and dashed down toward the road, leaping with a cry through the heather. But even before he had moved or called, the rider had reined in his horse and halted, looking up toward the thicket where they stood. When he saw Strider, he dismounted and ran down to meet them, calling out, His speech and clear, ringing voice left no doubt in their hearts. The rider was of the elven folk. No others that dwelt in the wide world had voices so fair to hear. But there seemed to be a note of haste or fear in his call, and they saw that he was now speaking quickly and urgently to Strider. Soon, Strider beckoned to them, and the hobbits left the bushes and hurried down to the road. "'This is Glofindel, who dwells in the house of Elrond,' said Strider. "'Hail, and well met at last,' said the elf lord to Frodo. "'I was sent from Rivendell to look for you. We feared that you were in danger upon the road.' "'Then Gandalf has reached Rivendell?' cried Frodo joyfully. "'No.' He had not when I departed, but that was nine days ago, answered Glorfindel. Elrond received news that troubled him. Some of my kindred, journeying in your land beyond the Baranduin, learned that things were amiss, 
and sent messages as swiftly as they could. They said that the nine were abroad, and that you were astray bearing a great burden without guidance, for Gandalf had not returned. There are few, even in Rivendell, that can ride openly against the nine, but such as they were, Elrond sent out north, west, and south. It was thought that you might turn far aside to avoid pursuit and become lost in the wilderness. It was my lot to take the road, and I came to the bridge of Mithaethel and left a token there nigh on seven days ago. Three of the servant of Sauron were upon the bridge, but they withdrew, and I pursued them westward. I came also upon two others, but they turned away southward. Since then I have searched for your trail. Two days ago I found it, and followed it over the bridge, and today I marked where you descended from the hills again. But come, there is no time for further news. Since you are here, we must risk the peril of the road again. There are five behind us, and when they find your trail upon the road, they will ride after us like the wind. And they are not all. Where the other four might be, I do not know. I fear that we may find the ford is already held against us. While Glorfindel was speaking, the shades of evening deepened. Frodo felt a great weariness come over him. Ever since the sun began to sink, the mist before his eyes. Hmm. Ever since the sun began to sink, the mist before his eyes had darkened, and he felt that a shadow was coming between him and the faces of his friends. Now pain assailed him, and he felt cold. He swayed, clutching Sam's arm. My master's sick and wounded, said Sam angrily. He can't go riding on after nightfall. He needs his rest. Gorfindel caught Frodo as he sank to the ground, and taking him gently in his arms, he looked, with grave anxiety in his face. Briefly, Strider told of the attack on their camp under Weathertop, and of the deadly knife. He drew out the hilt which he had kept and handed it to the elf. Glorfindel shuddered as he took it, but he looked intently at it. "'There are evil things written on this hilt,' he said though maybe your eyes cannot see them. Keep it, Aragorn, until we reach the house of Elrond. Be wary, and handle it as little as you may. Alas, the wounds of this weapon are beyond my skill to heal. I will do what I can, but all the more do I urge you now to go on without rest. He searched the wound on Frodo's shoulder with his fingers, and his face grew graver, as if what he learned disquieted him. But Frodo felt the chill lessen in his side and his arm. A little warmth crept down from his shoulder into his hand, and the pain grew easier. The dusk of evening seemed to grow lighter about him, as if a cold had been withdrawn. He saw his friends' faces more clearly again, and a measure of new hope and strength returned. "'You shall ride my horse,' said Glorfindel. "'I will shorten the stirrups up to the saddle skirts, and you must sit as tight as you can, but do not fear.' My horse will not let any rider fall that I command him to bear. His pace is light and smooth, and if danger passes too near, he will bear you away with a speed that even the black steeds of the enemy cannot rival. No, he will not, said Frodo. I shall not ride him if I am to be carried off to Rivendell or anywhere else, leaving my friends behind in danger. Glorfindel smiled. I doubt very much, 
he said, if your friends would be in danger if you were not with them. The pursuit would follow you and leave us in peace, I think. It is you, Frodo, and that which you bear that brings us all peril. To that, Frodo had no answer, and he was persuaded to mount Glorfindel's white horse. The pony was laden instead with a great part of the other's burden, so that now they marched lighter and for a time made good speed, but the hobbits found it hard to keep up with the swift, tireless feet of the elf. On he led them, into the mouth of darkness, and still on under the deep, clouded night. There was neither star nor moon. Not until the gray light of dawn did he allow them to halt. Pippin, Merry, and Sam were by that time nearly asleep on their stumbling legs, and even Strider seemed by the sag of his shoulders to be weary. Frodo sat upon the horse in a dark dream. They cast themselves down in the heather a few yards from the roadside, and fell asleep immediately. They seemed hardly to have closed their eyes when Glorfindel, who had set himself to watch while they slept, awoke them again. The sun had now climbed far into the morning, and the clouds and mists of the night were gone. "'Drink this,' said Glorfindel to them, pouring for each in turn a little liquor from his silver-studded flask of leather. It was clear as spring water and had no taste, and it did not feel either cool or warm in their mouth, but strength and vigor seemed to flow into all of their limbs as they drank it. Eaten after that draft, the stale bread and dried fruit, which was now all they had left, seemed to satisfy their hunger better than many a good breakfast in the Shire had done. They had rested rather less than five hours when they took to the road again. Glorfindel still urged them on and only allowed them two brief halts during the day's march. In this way, they covered almost twenty miles before nightfall and came to a point where the road bent right and ran down toward the bottom of the valley, now making straight for the Bruinen. So far, there had been no sign or sound of pursuit that the hobbits could see or hear, but often Glorfindel would halt and listen for a moment, if they lagged behind, and a look of anxiety clouded his face. Once or twice he spoke to Strider in the elf tongue. But however anxious their guides might be, it was plain that the hobbits could go no further that night. They were stumbling along, dizzy with weariness, and unable to think of anything but their feet and legs. Frodo's pain had redoubled, and during the day things about him faded to shadows of ghostly gray. He almost welcomed the coming of night, for then the world seemed less pale and empty. The hobbits were still weary when they set out again early next morning. There were many miles yet to go between them and the ford, and they hobbled forward with the best pace that they could manage. "'Our peril will be greatest just ere we reach the river,' said Glorfindel. "'For my heart warns me now that pursuit is swiftly behind us, and other danger may be waiting by the ford.' The road was still running steadily downhill, and there was now in places much grass on either side, in which the hobbits walked when they could, to ease their tired feet. In the late afternoon they came to a place where the road went suddenly under the dark shadow of tall pine trees, and then plunged away into a deep cutting with steep, moist walls of red stone. Echoes ran along as they hurried forward, and there seemed to be the sound of a great many footfalls following their own. All at once, as if through a gate of light, the road ran out again from the end of the tunnel into the open. There, at the bottom of the sharp incline, they saw before them a long, flat mile, and beyond that, the Ford of Rivendell. 
On the further side was a steep brown bank threaded along a winding path, and behind that tall mountains climbed, shoulder above shoulder, and peak beyond peak into the fading sky. There was still an echo as if of following feet in the cutting behind them, a rushing noise as if of a wind rising and pouring between the branches of the pines. One moment, Gorfindel turned and listened. Then he sprang forward with a loud cry. Fly! he called. Fly! The enemy is upon us! The white horse leapt forward. The hobbits ran down the slope. Glorfindel and Strider followed his rear guard. They were only halfway across the flat when suddenly there was a noise of horses galloping. Out of the gate in the trees that they had just left rode a black rider. He reined his horse in and halted, swaying in his saddle. Another followed him, and then another, and then again two more. "'Ride forward! Ride!' cried Glorfindel de Frodo. He did not obey at once, for a strange reluctance seized him. Checking the horse to a walk, he turned and looked back. The riders seemed to sit upon their great steeds like threatening statues upon a hill, dark and solid, while all around the woods and land about them receded as if into a mist. Suddenly... He knew in his heart they were silently commanding him to wait. Then at once, fear and hatred awoke in him. His left hand left the bridle and gripped the hilt of his sword, and with a red flash he drew it. "'Ride on! Ride on!' cried Glorfindel, and then loud and clear he called to the horse in his elf tongue, "'Norolim! Norolim! Asphaloth!' At once, the white horse sprang away and sped like wind along the last lap of the road. At the same moment, the black horses leapt down the hill in pursuit, and from then the riders gave a terrible cry, such as Frodo had heard filling the woods with horror in the east farthing far away. It was answered, and to the dismay of Frodo and his friends, out from the trees and rocks away from the left, four other riders came flying. Two rode toward Frodo. Two galloped madly across the ford to cut off his escape. They seemed to him to run like the wind and grow swiftly larger and darker as their courses converged with his. Frodo looked back for a moment over his shoulder. He could no longer see his friends. The riders behind were falling back. Even their great steeds were no match in speed for the white elf horse of Glorfindel. He looked forward again, and hope faded. There seemed no chance of reaching the ford before he was cut off by the others that had lain in ambush. He could see them clearly now. They appeared to have cast aside their cloaks and hoods, and they were robed in white and gray. Swords were naked in their pale hands, helms were upon their heads. Their cold eyes glittered, and they called to him with fell voices. <laughs> Fear now filled all Frodo's mind. He thought no longer of his sword. No cry came from him. He shut his eyes and clung to the horse's mane. The wind whistled in his ears, and the bells upon the harness rang wild and shrill. A breath of deadly cold pierced him like a spear. As if with a last spurt, like a flash of white fire, the elf horse speeding as if on wings passed right before the face of the foremost rider. <laughs> Frodo heard the splash of water. It foamed about his feet. He felt the quick heave and surge as the horse left the river and struggled up the stony path. He was climbing the steep bank. He was across the ford, but his pursuers were close behind. 
At the top of the bank, the horse halted and turned about, neighing fiercely. There were nine riders at the water's edge below, and Frodo's spirit quailed before the threat of their upturned faces. He knew nothing that would prevent them from crossing as easily as he had done. And yet he felt it was so useless to try and escape over the long, uncertain path from the ford to the edge of Rivendell, if once the riders crossed. In any case, he felt that he was commanded urgently to halt. Hatred again stirred in him, but he had no longer the strength to refuse. <laughs> Suddenly, the foremost rider spurred his horse forward. It checked at the water and reared up. <laughs> With a great effort, Frodo sat upright and brandished his sword. Go back, he cried. Go back to the land of Mordor and follow me no more. His voice sounded thin and shrill in his own ears. The riders halted, but Frodo had not the power of Bombadil. His enemies laughed at him with a harsh and chilling laughter. <laughs> they called. To Mordor, we will take you. Go back, he whispered. The ring, the ring. They cried with deadly voices, and immediately their leader urged his horse forward into the water, followed closely by two others. By Elpereth and Luthien the Fair said Frodo, with a last effort, lifting up his sword. "'You shall have neither the ring nor me!' Then the leader, who was now half across the ford, stood up menacing in his stirrups and raised up his hand. Frodo was stricken dumb. He felt his tongue cleave to his mouth and his heart laboring. His sword broke and fell out of his shaking hand. The elf horse reared and snorted. The foremost of the Black Riders was almost set foot upon the shore. At that moment there came a roaring and a rushing, a noise of loud waters rolling many stones. Dimly, Frodo saw the river below him rise, and down along its course there came a plumed cavalry of waves. White flames seemed to Frodo to flicker upon their crests, and he half fancied he saw amidst the water white riders upon white horses with frothing manes. The three riders that were still in the midst of the ford were overwhelmed. They disappeared, buried suddenly under the angry foam. Those that were behind drew back in dismay. With his last failing senses, Frodo heard cries, and it seemed to him that he saw, beyond the riders that hesitated upon the shore, a shining figure of white light, and behind it ran small shadowy forms waving flames that flared red in the gray mist that was falling over the world. The black horses were filled with madness, and leaping forward in terror they bore their riders into the rushing flood. Their piercing cries were drowned in the roaring of the river as it carried them away. And then Frodo felt himself falling and the roaring and confusion seemed to rise and engulf him together with his enemies. He heard and saw no more.
have it, folks. The end of book one, part one. We move on. Uh, if we are to divide all three of these books into two parts each, we move on next week into book one, part two. Uh, our first chapter, uh, our first and only chapter next week, much like this week, uh, is going to be chapter one, Many Meetings. Conference Room Brawl. No, <laughs> not that second part. Many Meetings. That one's true. Jade says, oh, man, stupid cliffhanger. <laughs> we got got again. We thought we were free of it, but not so. Um, Gwendog says, holy ending to come in on. Yeah, so this one, very exciting. A thrilling conclusion, as uh, <laughs> as one might fairly say. A real doozy. Um, we once again find a chapter has ended by Frodo passing clean out. Uh, TKO for Frodo. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, uh, <laughs> he's doing his best. He's not built for this stuff, you know? Um, he's not built for this. Uh, yeah, so uh, uh, Sander has mentioned that uh, our first bit of chapter art was a little bit of a spoiler. I felt like it was okay because it was such a narrow spoiler, right? It, it only lasted like three paragraphs, uh, this whole arc here. But um, as you can see up here on the screen, um, someone has done some miniatures work of the of the three trolls, which I think is fantastic. Um, they probably got like 3D printed or cast miniatures and then did some... Uh, I did some fake grass and some fake trees in the background, but if y'all are wondering what I'm working on over in my uh, over in my special thread in the creativity channel, well, it's something a little bit like this. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know what? Well, it's up here on the screen. Let me. I'm gonna go grab it because I want to show it to you because I'm I'm really proud of it. It it like it worked out so much better than I thought it was going to. Uh, just a second. I will be right back. Let me grab this for us. Where is it? Is it in here? No, it's in the other room. <laughs> all right so um if y'all are wondering like my my sort of entry into this uh, as i may have mentioned to you all a couple of times i am i'm working well uh, my next project i should say is to uh build a diorama of the shire it's going to be four feet by six feet um, and uh, I did this little project as, uh, this is a one foot by one foot, uh, by like nine inches. Um, this is a little, oh, okay, so I did forget how much the green was going to muck things up here. Uh, <laughs> um, 
this is something I've been working on. Let me go ahead and adjust my filter off. There we go. There we have it. So, um, I've been working on this. This is going to be a waterfall diorama. Um, uh, but this is, uh, like I said, about 12 inches by 12 inches by about 9 inches tall. Um, I am going to be pouring a bunch of resin down here into this. Ooh, I can I can talk to you from behind here. I'll all close. Um, there's going to be a little waterfall that tumbles down here from a, a, a pool up top, down here into a middle pool, and then down two different uh, spouts down into this lower area here, um, where there's going to be kind of a, a riverbed. Um, this is, like, it, it turned out a lot better than I was expecting it to. I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm really proud of it. So um, this was simply designed as a proof of concept. Uh, the whole plan was to build this thing and then uh, once at ooh secret hidey hole haven't done anything with it I was planning on making it a cave maybe but I'm, I just decided to go with some of the fundamentals here um, but uh, yeah my my plan was just to do this one so I could learn some of these techniques because this is my first time doing something like this and I mean it turned out really really nice I'm really happy with it so uh, I am very much looking forward to whatever progress we might be able to make uh, with the the Shire <laughs> I think that's going to be very exciting um and uh yeah so wish me some luck uh but i just figured it was relevant i saw that somebody had done some miniatures work um uh for the chapter uh from this piece of art right here and figured you know what might as well let the people know what i'm up to as well so big old this one like i said this is one foot by one foot and it's like you know that's kind of sizable you know it's not a it's not a tiny little thing um but yeah just imagine um Let's see, four by six. Just imagine, you know, 24 of these together. <laughs> uh, I'm going to divide it up into three sections um, such that you can kind of shift the hills around. Um, but I'm, I'm excited. Uh, we're, it's going to have a whole bunch of like, I'm going to, this one didn't have any fake trees on it, but I'm going to do some fake trees on it. Uh, I'm going to do some like a, a, a little paddle wheel building, um, a water wheel building. Uh, I'm going to do a bunch of different hobbit holes because my... Uh, somebody that I work with is um, uh, has a 3D printer, and rather than, although I do like building, um, you know, little like homes and hobbit holes and stuff, I would enjoy that. It would be kind of too much to do this and build all of those individually. So he's going to 3D print some of those, and Cass may help me paint them if I can. She, she wants to. It's just a matter of how much time she has. Um, so very exciting, <laughs> very exciting. Um, oh dang, not Corey. Hello, not Corey. Um, is this a, is it possible that I recognize you by a different name? Uh, <laughs> because not Corey does not sound familiar even from the old days, but I'm glad to have you here. Uh, not Corey says this is my first live stream in almost two years. I caught up on Lord of the Rings over the holidays, uh, and I'm glad to be here. Corey says, I like it when the main character passes out because you get that suspense of the moment that makes them pass out and then the confused like, what happened while I was out? Um, yeah, absolutely. And it's a good way to like get some exposition done without like f forcing us to to watch action scenes, which I think were sort of out of vogue in the day. And I will admit are are like genuinely hard to follow. It is one of the you know, one of the few things that I really prefer uh, to watch rather than to read. <laughs> Good courage says, yeah, I need to get a 3D printer. Indeed. Indeed. Well, uh, I am developing out some uh, some techniques that I've used on this miniatures work um, that I think may make it sort of uh, more accessible for people. 
um, which is like a big thing that I try to do kind of always, you know, um, uh, I'm writing, you know, Silver Bullet, which is an RPG that you don't need any special dice for. You literally just use whatever kind of coins you've got on hand. Um, I, I'm big on democratization of of these things. And uh, for those of you who are interested, perhaps, in miniatures or model making or diorama or what have you, um, and you're wondering, like, how do you do big landforms like this? Well, I have got a couple of very inexpensive ways to make it happen and uh, if you want to follow all of this I, I could explain it all now but you'll get a much better explanation um, over in discord I have got a special threads you'll want to check the threads in the creativity slash self uh, slash food slash uh, self promo channel uh, over in discord I've got a thread called Sam's terrain craft um, and I can explain it all there but I'm developing a special material called hollow deck h-o-l-l-o-w um, and uh, Hollow Deck, I think, is something that just about anybody could make. It's got three ingredients. All of them are cheap and easy to get. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, and then just a cardboard skeleton. So if you want to find out more, I will be, uh, of course, I've, I've been doing lots of pictures and posts over there regarding my progress on this. It's been a long time because I was learning a lot with this one. But I think, I mean, I think I'm going to be able to get the, the I'm going to start, like, I'll be able to start getting green on the board uh, for the, the Shire one, I'm guessing, within like the first eight hours of actual work on the thing. So we shall see. First, it, it might even be dramatically less than that. We shall see. Um, <laughs> not Corey says, uh, I was here for the beginning of Harry Potter era, but I think my old Twitch name was different. Uh, quite all right, not Corey. Um, I do, there is a, like, C-O-R-I that is, like, ringing some bell, but I cannot remember precisely what it was. But, hey, not Corey, welcome back. Good to see you again. Um, so, yeah, folks, thank you very much for joining me here. Um, I think, I think, um, let me see. Marin Fair says, you can make some neat stuff out of cardboard. Yes, indeed, yeah, it, like, you can make some really great stuff out of cardboard. Um, this is mostly cardboard as a matter of fact uh it is cardboard there's a little bit of plaster um and uh some like paper pulp in there um but that stuff is easy to get your hands on but let's see uh other than the flock the flock uh, which is the the like green stuff that you use for the grass that you can make out of sawdust um uh, i had i had access to some different stuff because i found it at uh, at a thrift shop um that stuff is the only stuff that's like you kind of do need like something specifically designed for this, but the rest of it um, is all uh, essentially paper product, plaster, and tin foil. Um, so, if you want to find out more about that, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be, I'll be catching it up over in Discord. Don't you worry. Um, I really enjoy it. It is going to be so cool to have a big Shire board uh, nearby. And then I got to figure out what I'm going to do after that. Am I going to do something from Lord of the Rings? Because I think like um, uh, Amon Hen, which I'm going to hold up my, my hand for some spoilers here. Um, but for those of you who are familiar with this, uh, <laughs> Amon Hen is the place where, um, oh boy, a lot happens. You know what? Maybe this is easier. Amon Hen is uh, the site of the end of the first movie. The end of the first movie, uh, and with, with all the, the many things that happened there, uh, is Amon Hen. Uh, and you can look up pictures of it. But I would love to do a, a big uh, big diorama of that. I would love to do one of um, 
uh, of uh, the White City of Gondor, Minas Tirith. I would love to do something big like that. Um, you know, something with a lot of like vertical element to it. We'll see. We'll see what I get up to. What kind of what kind of crazy nonsense? <laughs> um, but everybody, thank you a ton for joining me here. Uh, I love y'all. I hope you have an excellent week. My name is Sam, and this is, of course, Sidecar Stories. Uh, catch us up. Uh, catch up with us on Tuesdays for Sherlock Holmes: The Complete Collection. Uh, we are currently reading through the Sign of Four, so you're still here at a good time to sort of catch us early. Um, uh, on Wednesdays for Night School at Vesperal Academy, uh, quickly winding down uh, our second big chapter in that campaign, and third, this here, Lord of the Rings. <laughs>